Everybody, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscamol, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, and we are broadcasting from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. Folks, we got a lot of talk about this week. This was actually supposed to be our second volume of What the Fisk. But there has been so much news just in the past seven days since our last podcast that we're actually doing a regular old podcast this time. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Donald Trump and his incompetent statements and his incompetent hires. Also talk about a new TSA policy that I'm sure is going to be fun. But a big chunk of the show is going to be dedicated to the criminal justice news. And then in the back third, I'm going to talk about a viral story that went around about North Carolina and talk a little bit about our common law system of government and how laws evolve over time. Quick podcast note, we are up on several other podcast apps. There were some more that were tweeted at me over the weekend. Uh, I think Podbay was one of them, and there's a bunch of others. Um, So just know that if you do not see us and your podcast app of choice, please let me know. I've been trying to compile... Uh, several of the URLs so that we can pass them around to folks. Also, last week I mentioned to you that we were going to set up a Patreon account. Uh, That is kind of there. It exists. So it will be patreon.com slash fisk. That's patreon.com slash fsck. But don't go there yet because there's nothing actually there. Like there's my picture. There's the Fiskamall banner artwork. But I haven't really done much. I mean, you can still sign up. We do have our first tier there, but I want to go ahead and do like an intro video and all the other cool fancy stuff that you're supposed to do when you set up a Patreon account. So just know now that that exists. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, please follow us on Twitter. The Twitter account is at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. Tweet us with the hashtag FISC, hashtag F-S-C-K. If you'd like to comment on any of the shows, you can also go to our website, FISCAMALL.com, F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. You'll also see the show notes there in perpetuity. And for the least 10 episodes, iTunes keeps our most recent 10 episodes, uh, we have our show notes there as well. You just click an episode and it will pull up the episode description as well as hyperlinks to all of our notes. So that's it for the podcast updates. Let's talk about this mess that has been our political system this week. So we start off with the great Papaya Potus himself, Donald Trump, admitting this week that he actually did try to influence James Comey's testimony by bluffing and pretending that he actually had tapes of their conversation. Listen to this minute-long softball interview with Fox & Friends. So you never know what's out there, but I didn't tape, and I don't have any tape, and I didn't tape. But when he found out that uh, I, you know, that there may be tapes out there, whether it's governmental tapes or anything else, and who knows, uh, I think his story may have changed. I mean, you'll have to take a look at that, because then he has to tell what actually took place at the events. And my story didn't change. My story was always a straight story. My story was always the truth. But you'll have to determine for yourself whether or not his story changed. But uh, I did not take. Quick show of hands. How many of you actually think that Donald Trump's story was the truth, as he said in the middle of that interview? 
I noticed there are no hands raised. Yes, I asked a visual question on an audio-only podcast for a reason, because I know the answer already. Uh, Folks, look, I don't know the rationale behind trying to admit to attempted witness tampering, but for a guy that's under investigation for obstruction of justice, admitting on Fox that he was attempting to obstruct justice and influencing what James Comey would say doesn't seem like the smartest strategy out there, don't get me wrong. Uh, I've misjudged the president before, so maybe this is four-dimensional chess and I'm just missing out on it, but it seems like a pretty dumb admission. Uh, But that was not the only dumb statement he made this week. He actually had a rally out in Iowa where he got a standing ovation by saying that he wants to make sure that undocumented immigrants do not get welfare benefits for at least five years. He's going to go to Congress and pass a law and make sure that happens. Uh, There's just one hitch. That's actually already the law and has been the law since I was in elementary school. But no one bothers to uh, notice that when they're standing up and waving their MAGA hats and cheering for him. So that was in Iowa. And then he had a meeting with the president of Panama and actually decided to congratulate America uh, for our construction of the Panama Canal that was done about 100 years ago, give or take. Listen to this. We have many things to discuss. Uh, We're going to spend quite a bit of time today. Uh, Panama Canal is doing quite well. I think we did a good job building it, right? Yeah. We did a very good job. Yeah. But uh, things are going well in Panama. Uh, the relationship has been very strong. We are developing new things to do and uh, only getting stronger. Now, credit to the Panamanian president for actually working into the middle there the comment that the canal was actually built 100 fucking years ago. Uh, But, you know, the other part that bothers me, aside from the stupidity of commenting on that, is that if you actually listen to the words that come out of Trump's mouth, 90% of the time, if not more, he never actually fucking says anything. It's just word salad. I'm like, oh, God, have mercy. I mean, you think at this point I would be used to the fact that we have an imbecile in the Oval Office, but I just stop and I think out of all of the presidents that we've had, we've had some of them that were actually capable of stringing together coherent sentences. Some of them were actually really good orators. And now we have Cheddar Ceausescu just taking a dump on the majesty of all prior presidents. It really boggles my mind. But aside from him being an idiot, turns out a lot of his staff are idiots as well. Uh, He hired Lynn Patton to be the head of low-income housing for New York and New Jersey. Uh, Her credentials were that she was a event planner for the Trump organization. She helped event planning for the Trumps for almost eight years. And when she was hired, it was like, oh, well, you know, you look at her LinkedIn. It looks like she's got a law degree from Quinnipiac University School of Law. I don't actually know where Quinnipiac is, but it has a law school. Well, if you actually look, it says that she was only there from 1998 to 2000. And I don't think Quinnipiac has a two-year law program. I'm sure they might exist somewhere, but I don't think they had them back then. And turns out that the media contacted the school registrar, Jim Benson, and said that Patton attended not for two years, but in fact for two semesters and never graduated. So that is one of our great policymakers here. Then over in the energy department, he appointed William C. Bradford to uh, be one of the officials over there. This is the genius that 
tweeted out, for example, uh, I think this is a quote, by the way, I think Obama was given his mission in Tehran long ago and it suits him just fine. How else can a Kenyan cream puff get ahead? One of his other favorite hits was in response to a tweet about Mark Zuckerberg, says, quote, Who is this little, arrogant, self-hating Jew to tell anyone for whom to vote? I hope someday he gets what he deserves for stealing Facebook. This guy is now the head, the person in charge of the Energy Department's Office of Indian Energy. So congratulations, America. There we have two great leading lights uh, getting paid with your tax dollars to continue fucking everything up. Speaking of fucking everything up, the uh, TSA, Transportation Safety Administration, the people that passed around nude x-rays for sport soon after the 9-11 attacks when we started having all these body scanners in place, they have a new policy where the TSA is going to take a look at your books and other paper goods, and they're going to look at them and see what it is you're reading. You can already imagine how incredibly invasive and stupid and prone for abuse that policy is going to be. Uh, California defense attorney and noted First Amendment lawyer Ken White, who you all might know as Pope Hat, uh, actually has a Twitter thread up where he was already uh, questioned at length by TSA because he was heading to a uh, for hearing for someone he represented. One of the issues was a machine gun that he had a picture of in his files. So he got questioned thoroughly for actually having the audacity to try and board a plane to go to a hearing with one of the pictures of evidence in his documents. We'll link that thread in the show notes. Uh, we also have a Republican Congress critter uh, from the Mississippi, sorry, it's a state level Congress critter, let me correct myself, from the Mississippi House of Representatives, uh, Carl Oliver, who decided that it would be appropriate to kill people in exchange for their efforts to remove Confederate monuments. Uh, he posted a statement that says, quote, the destruction of these monuments erected in the loving memory of our family and fellow Southern Americans is both heinous and horrific. If the, and I use this term extremely loosely, leadership of Louisiana wishes to, in a Nazi-ish fashion, burn books or destroy historical monuments of our history, in all caps, uh, they should be lynched, all caps, exclamation point. Let it be known, I will do all of my power to prevent this from happening in our state. Now, I don't know why a white Republican Mississippi state Congress critter would feel compelled to talk about lynching, uh, particularly when you have a lot of these monuments that were not actually erected until the Civil Rights era in the 1960s, over 100 years after the South lost the fucking Civil War. But there you go. This is one of your policymakers. Um this is the kind of rhetoric that, you know, we've got in the Donald Trump era. And we've seen some of that play out in real life. Up in Virginia, uh, a Muslim teenager, 17-year-old Nabra Hassanin, was actually murdered because it's been uh, Ramadan for those of the Muslim community where they fast from sunup to sundown. And then when the sun sets, they break the fast. Kids will go off and get food. Uh, this 17-year-old girl was on her way to an IHOP when she was actually killed by a guy named Darwin Martinez Torres, a 22-year-old. Uh, not only was she killed uh, for being Muslim, but then when there was a memorial to her in D.C., it was actually defaced and defiled because we have such great, amazing people in this country that they can't uh, see any intrinsic value to life if that life happens to be Muslim. Uh, let's talk about some 
other news here in North Carolina, we have all sorts of fuckery going on with our state budget. Now, I'm more defensive of state Republicans than most when it comes to the budget here because, uh, you know, I used to be a Republican. I was living here under the Mike Easley and Bev Perdue era where they just taxed more and more and more and spent more and more and more. So I'm not surprised that under McCrory and uh, now under Cooper that the Republicans who took control of the legislature in 2010 have been trying to right-size the scope of our state government because, it, frankly, it got absurdly big. I mean, I could tell y'all stories. We used to have a teapot museum in Sparta, North Carolina, paid with your tax dollars. Uh, we have a theater in Roanoke Rapids that I drive by every time I go visit my grandparents. That was part of a crooked deal with Randy Parton, Dolly Parton's brother. And while I love and respect the people of Roanoke Rapids, there's nothing in that part of the state. I mean, the theater has been losing money left and right because there's really not a whole lot there and folks aren't going to go visit the theater because when you go to a theater in the middle of nowhere, it's kind of weird. You want to have some other stuff to do when your show is done. Um, the list goes on. I mean, there's all kinds of criminal sources of waste that took place in our government for decades. So the Republicans have been trying to fix some of that. But there have been a lot of spots where, frankly, they've been going overboard because they've been in office for, you know, almost six years now. So there's not a whole lot more to do. One of those things is that they have included as part of the budget language that targets judges' abilities to approve waivers for court costs. Now, I've talked before about the fact that court costs are an immense fundraiser for the government. If you have a traffic ticket, you're going to pay at least $178. You're usually going to pay over $200 apiece. For every weed ticket, you're paying at least $180 to the court, $250 to get a drug assessment and recommended treatment. It brings in millions upon millions upon millions of dollars every single year. This is what politicians use to fund the government without raising your taxes. Wake County alone, roughly about 20 minutes south of where I live, the Wake County justice system, they issue so many speeding tickets in a given year that your odds of getting a ticket as a Wake County resident over a three-year time span is 100%. They issue one ticket for every three residents every single year. And if you look at the data of how many of those tickets have been pled down and then you have to pay the $188 in court costs for them, Wake County brings in enough money to fund every single prosecutor, public defender, judge, and clerk for their entire court system for that county and have a little bit left over to run the counties around them. So what happens is this court costs money, goes to the general fund, and then the state takes the money they would normally put towards the judiciary and puts that somewhere else. So it's all a shell game. The court costs money that comes to the general fund as part of this general pot that no one talks about, and then it gets given back to the court system, makes it look like it's part of their recurring revenue from normal tax dollars when it's not. That recurring revenue from your income taxes and such gets diverted away to something else. So they have something they can go buy votes with. And they rely on that court cost money to keep the court system running. So one of the things that judges do is if you're too broke to pay your court costs because you're indigent, a judge can waive those costs. 
And what the General Assembly has done as part of this new budget language is say, no, no, that's not possible. Before you're allowed to do that, you first have to have a new hearing that notice is provided to every government agency that gets a chunk of that court cost money, which is roughly around 15 agencies. So the police get a cut, the administrative office of the courts gets a cut. There's a nice long list for every piece of court costs. And essentially what this is going to do is completely eliminate the ability for judges to waive costs. I argue that it's totally unconstitutional. It's a legislative overreach that infringes on judicial branch powers, the discretion of judges. Uh, But that is part of the new budget that just got passed uh, by both chambers and is going to the governor for his signature. Also with North Carolina-specific news, actually in Durham County-specific news, the United States Supreme Court issued their ruling regarding the First Amendment rights of sex offenders uh, in the case of Packingham versus North Carolina. Uh, This is a case where Durham police were spending their time surfing Facebook and noticed that a guy who was a registered sex offender had posted on a Facebook page that he had gotten a traffic ticket resolved. Uh, That violated a statute where the General Assembly said that if you're a sex offender, you're not allowed to be on any social networking site that could theoretically have someone under the age of 18 on it. Um, That law ended up going all the way up to the Supreme Court where it was struck down almost uh, unanimously. The judgment was unanimous, but the rationales were a little bit different. Um, There was a five-justice majority opinion, and then there was a concurring opinion with Alito, Roberts, and Thomas um, that agreed with the outcome but not the analysis. But if you recall back from a couple podcasts ago when I talked to you about how the First Amendment works and how we look at restrictions on speech, that particular case – Uh, is actually a good analysis of how that gets all applied out. So I'll link the opinion in the show notes. Definitely give it a read. So let's switch gears and talk some criminal justice news. Uh, Five new officials have been charged with manslaughter regarding the Flint water crisis. Uh, For those of you not familiar with it, Flint uh, has not had clean water for a couple years now, I think. Uh, Essentially, to save money, politicians switched the source of Flint water that ended up going through a bunch of lead pipes, so the water was thoroughly contaminated. A bunch of people have died, a bunch of people have gotten birth defects, a bunch of people have gotten severely ill, and residents have been living off of bottled water to bathe, to cook, to clean, to drink uh, for years. And a lot of those folks are too poor to move, so they're trapped with this poisoned water because the government completely and totally fucked up their lives. Uh, So at least five officials are facing new charges for that. Then we've got police mess all over the country. I mean, Jesus, there's a long fucking list. And we're going to start in California because this is a fucking outrage. Have a listen. He shot and killed a teenager in California. The intended target was an aggressive dog. Yes, a deputy with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department is such a bad shot that in the effort to shoot a dog, he actually killed a 17-year-old boy, Armando Garcia Murrow, shot him in the chest, and amazingly completely missed the dog. The dog survived, but he's managed to somehow take out a 17-year-old kid. Uh, I mean, really. And they saw, here's the thing, they saw the kid because the kid came out to try and contain the dog. So what are you doing? Like, you have other ways of dealing with aggressive animals. You don't pull out a gun and shoot towards an innocent civilian. So that 17-year-old kid is dead. Also down in Miami, a 71-year-old man was killed after a Miami police officer 
uh, was in a high-speed chase and crashed into two different vehicles. Uh, the driver of one of them, a 71-year-old Ramon Bueno, uh, was taken to Jackson Memorial Hospital in critical condition and died of his injuries. You know, we've talked before about the dangers of police in these high-speed chases. You had the uh, the guy that ended up in a flaming car because he got hit by somebody. He was a completely innocent bystander. Police beat the shit out of him anyway and then dragged him into the street. Uh, you had the other case where someone died from a high-speed chase. I think two podcasts ago we talked about it. Um, you know, we really have to reassess how we choose to engage uh, here when it comes to high-speed chases. Down in Arizona, we have new video evidence that U.S. Border Patrol agents killed a kid uh, who was crossing over from Mexico but was face down on the ground not moving when he was shot 10 times in the back and the head. Uh, Jose Antonio Elena Rodriguez was laying face down on the ground not moving at all, but U.S. Border Patrol agent Lonnie Swartz shot him repeatedly and killed him anyway because, hey, that's what we do these days. While we're on the topic of federal law enforcement, the United States Park Police thought that it made sense to arrest three African-American kids uh, who are near the mall's Smithsonian Castle, if any of you have ever been to D.C., uh, because they had committed the grievous, grievous crime of selling bottled water to tourists. Now, the interesting part about this is that also in D.C., just a few blocks away, an officer was approaching another kid's lemonade stand to buy unlicensed lemonade, but selling unlicensed water is a federal offense. So all three of those black teens were placed in handcuffs, and there's multiple pictures of them floating around online, even though they're basically providing a service, because if any of you have ever been up in that part of Washington, D.C., there's not a whole lot of vending options around, and on a hot day, that bottled water is great. Uh, also, here in North Carolina, a Charlotte woman went to Tennessee to pick up a uh, car that she had bought. She was in the process of putting a plate on it since it was now hers, and a uh, police officer showed up and pulled a gun on her, and they decided that it didn't do anything wrong. Police in Knoxville, Tennessee ruled that an off-duty officer acted appropriately uh, when he pulled a gun on a Charlotte woman because she was in the process of putting a new license tag on the car she bought. Uh, while we're on the topic of police stupidity going unpunished, I don't know if y'all remember in Columbus, Ohio, there was the video of a white officer doing his best Edward Norton impression from American History X, where a black guy is on the ground handcuffed and the white officer decides to kick him in the head anyway because he can. Police decided the appropriate response for that one is a 24-hour suspension of that particular officer. So now kicking someone who's restrained in the head gets you a one-day vacation. Uh, up in Omaha, Nebraska, a woman was taking her niece uh, to the pool and was in the process of removing her from the car when a gust of wind uh, blew the door shut and the door was locked. Now, the wind was gusting 40 miles an hour that day, and it was also a hot day. So, of course, the woman panics, calls the police, immediately desperately needs help to get the kid out of the car. And she ends up getting a citation because the two-year-old was in the car for about 15 minutes, so she was charged with uh, misdemeanor child abuse. In Minnesota, we had new dash cam video released showing a Buffalo Ridge Drug Task Force agent Joe Joswiak approaching a Laotian American named Anthony Promvangza, 22. And yeah, you really have to watch the video. We're going to give you the link. But essentially, this kid gets pulled over as part of a traffic stop. The officer immediately gets out, has his gun drawn, tells him to show his hands, 
get out of the car. The kid is still seat belted, doesn't have a chance to go reach to take the seatbelt off because you don't want to have him get shot like Philando Castile. And the officer opens the door and just starts beating the everlasting shit out of him, punching him and kicking him while he's actually belted in place and can't get out. Not to be outdone, police in St. Louis, Missouri, managed to shoot one of their own. An off-duty black police officer was assisting uh, fellow officers during an incident. And a white St. Louis cop showed up, didn't know that this black guy happened to be a police officer, even though he was doing everything the other officers told him to, immediately pulled his gun and shot the guy just happened that he only hit him in the arm because if you couldn't tell from the California deputy who missed the dog and took out a 17-year-old, police aren't terribly good with their aim. Uh, But yes, the St. Louis Police Department somehow managed to shoot one of their own. Uh, Even having a badge will not save you from the racial bias and implicit association that is prevalent in our culture today. Out in Utah, an American citizen, Yusuf Awadir Abdi, who was an imam with one of the... um, Uh, mosques out that way. This is a really bizarre story, but essentially he and his family were separated when he was trying to board a plane to come home. The country allowed him to leave, taking his family to Kenya briefly, but then when they were trying to get back, he somehow been placed on the no-fly list. For those of you that aren't familiar with the no-fly list, it is this... God... It should be unconstitutional, but it's not. But essentially, you can be designated by the government as someone who is not allowed to fly. We don't know how you get put on the list. There's no way to challenge being on the list. And this is what we use to determine who's allowed to fly and who's not. There have been documented instances of people being added erroneously, folks being flagged because they have the misfortune of sharing the same name or happen to be dating one of the agents who had access to the list. And this particular incident, we're going to link you to uh, the editorial that the Salt Lake Tribune ran. But it's just a really bizarre friggin' story, and it pisses me off that it's happening with a United States citizen because it's none of the government's damn business uh, where you're coming from if you're coming back home, all right? So in other related police news, there's been a new study out that shows police searches drop dramatically in those states that legalized marijuana. Uh, Traffic searches by the highway patrols in both Colorado and Washington plummeted dramatically since marijuana had been legalized. Of course, the main beneficiaries of that are people of color since they're disproportionately searched by police. So as you're pondering whether or not to legalize or at least decriminalize marijuana, give that a look. We also have a story out of Reason talking about Madison County, Mississippi and their police roadblocks, which are truly outrageous. I mean, Mississippi is just, it's Mississippi. I don't know if y'all ever watched uh, the movie Annapolis, but there's a quote in there about how everyone likes having uh, Mississippi because it means they're always at worst, only the second worst. So I'm going to link that to you, but that's really outrageous. Huffington Post, HuffPost, has a very good, surprisingly, uh, long-form journalism on police who are also domestic abusers and how ridiculous that can get. Um, It's a very long piece. took me about 20, 30 minutes to get through it all because there's just a lot there. Uh, But definitely check that out. Down in Alabama, which isn't all that far in front of Mississippi. I mean, they're ahead, but not by much. Uh, A Karan Torchek Davis has been in jail for 10 years waiting for his trial on murder charges. And he hasn't been tried yet because, get this, the court-appointed lawyer that he was given for his first four years of representation was the father of the police officer investigating the case. 
So if that doesn't scream conflict of interest, I don't know what does, that you've got your dad defending the guy that your boy is investigating. Uh, it's one of those ridiculous-ass things that you would imagine could only happen in Alabama. Uh, but this guy has been in jail since 2007, still has not had a trial yet, and the judge refused to dismiss the case for the state failing to prosecute. You might recall from our earlier discussion on the Constitution and the Bill of Rights that you do have a constitutional right to a speedy trial. Apparently 10 years uh, is still speedy in some people's minds. Speaking of trials, it's been a pretty uh, good week for the police not being held accountable for killing black men. Uh, a jury found the officer who killed Philando Castile, Geronimo Yanez, found him not guilty of second-degree manslaughter and not guilty on both charges for uh, in intentional discharge of a firearm. You might recall Philando Castile was the uh, guy who had been pulled over allegedly for a broken taillight. Uh, then within seconds of trying to produce his ID card as the officer has requested, officer reaches in, puts seven bullets in his chest as his girlfriend is in the passenger seat and his baby girl is in the back seat. All of it streamed on Facebook Live. There's also subsequent videos that were released afterwards. Uh, really, really devastating stuff. I mean, something where... Uh, I don't know if y'all know Tony Webster. He is at Webster on Twitter. He shared a lot of those documents and helped keep a lot of people informed during and after the trial. And it's just one of those things where I'm not surprised because I work in this system. I know how the juries operate. I know the blind support we give to the police. But this is one of those where you really kind of expected some kind of accountability. But turns out that was just the first trial where nothing was going to happen. Uh, in addition, the jurors in the execution of Silville Smith uh, from August 2016. That's also uh, in Milwaukee. You might recall we've had a lot of Milwaukee in the news lately. Uh, found the officer not guilty in that case when he killed Smith about 20 seconds after a traffic stop there. And then just a couple days later, uh, the officer uh, who killed Samuel DeBose, the campus cop who claimed that he was being dragged by DeBose's car, shot DeBose in the head. It turned out that he had lied in his body cam video was released showing he wasn't getting dragged at all. Uh, the jury deadlocked in that one. So this is now the second mistrial there where the prosecutor's been gung-ho trying to make sure that this killer cop gets convicted, but the jury's just not having it. So one of the things that you know has shocked people is that this happens all the fucking time, and at some point you just got to accept that it's not something to be shocked about. It's normal. It sucks. It's part of our system, but it's normal. And some of the ways to highlight how normal it is if y'all follow Clint Smith on Twitter, he is at Clint Smith 3 in Roman numerals. So at Clint Smith III. Uh, he does a lot of work on implicit association, racial bias, how that affects uh, poverty, criminal justice, everything else. He's a really bright guy with links to a lot of good information. He had a thread on Twitter where one of the things he's talked about is the studies that have been done by Stanford and by one of the universities in the Northeast that showed that people are actually more inclined to support regressive policing policy uh, when they know that people of color are disproportionately impacted by it. So you think it would be the opposite. We get information that minorities are unfairly targeted. We want to fix it. And actually, in reality, if you look at these studies as evidence, uh, we actually want more punishment the more we think that minorities are affected. So one of the studies, there was a question about North, uh, California's three strikes law. 
and they showed a uh, series of mugshots of people who were being prosecuted under the law, and then at the end, asked if they wanted to sign a petition to end it. In one of the videos, only about 25%-ish of the mugshots were people of color, and one of the other videos, that was increased to about 45%. And the people who saw the videos with 45% minority faces were actually less inclined to sign the petition to end the three strikes law. They liked it. They were made reservations about crime was their explanation for not signing. And then you had another one in New York City on a study about whether or not to end stop and frisk. And researchers read these participants' information about the national incarceration rate, which is about 40% black, versus the New York City incarceration rate, which is about 60% black, and then at the end asked if they would sign a petition to end the stop-and-frisk policy uh, that was so regressive it was actually found by a federal judge to be unconstitutional, a violation of our Fourth Amendment rights. And in another scenario, you had a situation where if you got the information that more black people were locked up, you were less inclined to want to end these draconian policing policies because you were concerned about crime. Uh, it's really, it's really, I don't even know what I would call it. Like it's thoroughly fucked up, but it's still eye-opening at the same time to know this information is out there. And it goes to uh, what a lot of people talk about, and I agree with wholeheartedly, that this discussion around implicit bias is a one-on-one -on -one type thing that's going to have to get fixed on a micro scale, but we can't afford to wait that long. We need to make fundamental structural policy changes that minimize the amount of contact police have with the citizenry because it's creating this reinforcing cycle where police are disproportionately targeting minorities, and then because we see minorities disproportionately targeted, we assume that they're naturally more criminally oriented, so we embrace more of these policies. I mean, it's a terrible feedback loop that's got to be fixed, and we're not going to be able to do it just by trying to convince people to stop being racist about it. We need fundamental structural change now. So that, believe it or not, all of those stories that I've just talked about, all of this has happened in the last week since our last podcast. You see why we didn't do a what the fisk this time because there's just so much out there. So let's take a break for a minute and transition into our Law 140 talking about common law. Now, if you were on social media at all in the past 48, 72 hours, you probably saw this story coming out of the Fayetteville Observer that indicates no does not mean no in North Carolina, that women cannot withdraw consent to sex after it's already given. And it's one of those stories that just... You know, it just sounds so good. I mean, this is like the handmaid's tale and we got Republicans in the North Carolina General Assembly. So, hey, let's just share this with everybody. And that's really what happened. The story went viral all over the place. I ended up in a lengthy thread uh, that I'm going to link in the show notes where I got into a debate with the state Congress critter peddling the argument, Senator Jeff Jackson, uh, because the reality is the story is bunk. It's complete bullshit. Uh, you have DAs that are wanting to not seem heartless when they don't want to prosecute a case, and they're blaming this one-off precedent from 1978, even though the legislature weeks later fixed the precedent with a wholesale change to the law. But we'll get to that in a minute. But one of the questions that came about from it, as everyone tried to dogpile on me for pointing out that this is bogus as a guy who's actually 
been in the defense arena and dealt with criminal defense work is this notion of what we call our common law system of government, how it works, how it changes over time, and how that relates with the case law at issue in this particular case. Now, y'all might remember when we talked back in our first two podcasts, the first one gave you an overview of the court system. I think it was the second one where we talked about the role that precedent plays and that sort of thing. Uh, mentioned that we have what is called the common law or judge-made law. It's something we inherited from the United Kingdom when we broke from the British. All former British colonies have this same type of system. So Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, uh, anyone that's part of the Commonwealth that used to be part of the UK inherited this same type of common law system of uh, their judicial branch. So essentially what that means is that you have, in our case, a constitution, you have legislatures making laws, but it's up to the judges to define stuff that's not defined. You know, For example, in the constitution, what does it mean for Congress to have powers that are necessary and proper to carry out their enumerated powers and duties? What does the necessary and proper clause mean? That's something that a judge ultimately has to define because it's not defined anywhere else. In particular, among the criminal law stuff, we had a lot of common law definitions for crimes before statutes were ever written to punish them. These were crimes that had been developed by virtue of several cases brought in courts. So, for example, murder was the unlawful killing of another with malice aforethought, you know, and the judges defined what unlawful meant, what it meant to kill another person, what malice aforethought was. Um, you had larceny, which was the trespassory taking and carrying away of the personal property of another with the intent to deprive the owner thereof. So what is a trespass? What is a taking? What is a carrying away? All of that stuff gets defined by judges. So that is in contrast to uh, what is called a civil law system. I think India is probably the best example of this. I'm not sure of many others. But essentially, in a civil law system, you don't really have precedent. It's the statutes themselves that take priority, and you can't really rely on other cases um, to have that stuff done. So we have a common law system. The, uh, the colonies in particular, the early states, had far more crimes defined by common law judicial rulings than they did by statutes. It's less so with states that were admitted to the Union later because we already kind of knew how government was supposed to operate. So you would have legislatures get criminal laws on the books pretty quickly. Um, but that is kind of the basis for our system. The role of precedent, the role of judges defining words, uh, that is all what we call the common law. Now, as you would expect, as we get older as a state and as a country, stuff that exists only in common law would eventually get codified in statute. So that's what happened in North Carolina with our rape laws. The common law definition of rape in North Carolina was the unlawful carnal knowledge of a woman by a man with the use of force against the woman's will. And those pieces, those elements have been defined by the judges over time. Uh, so, for example, carnal knowledge was the initial penetration only, however slight it was. Uh, the man part had to be someone, is not just any man, it had to be a man that was not the woman's husband. So being married was actually a defense to a rape charge until about 1993. The part about the use of force was subject to a lot of opinions, you know, whether or not psychological force was adequate, whether or not there had to be physical resistance, all of that stuff was defined. And then in about 1968, I think it was, 
the General Assembly adopted a statute that codified the common law definition of rape. That's all it was. So both the common law and the statutory law were the exact same at that point. And again, defined rape as applying only to the initial penetration, and that was it. So if you take, for example, a uh, use as an analogy, driving while intoxicated. Imagine that the DWI law only applied to when you opened the door and sat in the driver's seat. If you were sober when you sat in the driver's seat, you could chug a fifth and drive off and you wouldn't be guilty of DWI. That's how the law was originally written. It's essentially a problem with bad drafting. Legislators weren't thinking well enough on how that all played out. But the definition mattered. Because in 1970, the United States Supreme Court considered a case called In Re Winship. This is one of the landmark decisions that are taught in criminal law classes, uh, really in every law school in the country. And the question there involved a minor, a kid who was only 12 years old, had been charged for breaking into a woman's locker room and stealing a woman's pocketbook. And at the time, if you were a juvenile, you were under a less strict burden of proof than adults. You only had to be found guilty by a preponderance of the evidence, whereas with an adult, you had to be proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And the question that the Supreme Court had to consider was whether or not this difference in the burden of proof violated the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Now, short answer is yes. The Supreme Court decided that all criminal laws, regardless of your age, have to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. But one of the key points that came out of this decision was the court looking at the history of that burden of proof over time. And the quote, uh, court said, quote, lest there remain any doubt about the constitutional stature of the reasonable doubt standard, we explicitly hold that the due process clause protects the accused against conviction except upon proof beyond a reasonable doubt of every fact necessary to constitute the crime with which he is charged. That language, every fact necessary to constitute the crime with which he is charged, became the subject of a lot of follow-on litigation in the district and appellate courts in the years ahead. And essentially why that mattered is that the facts necessary to constitute the crime with which you are charged are the elements in the statute. You have to have facts to satisfy each of those elements beyond a reasonable doubt. So the case that everyone has been talking about with respect to that particular Fayetteville Observer article is a case from the Supreme Court of North Carolina called the State of North Carolina versus Donnie Leon Way. The decision was handed down on May 17th of 1979. Remember that date because we're going to come back to it later. And what the court said was that essentially with the facts of the case, man and a woman originally consented to sex and then the woman withdrew her consent. Uh, and the court said that it's true that consent can be withdrawn. That was a quote from the paragraph. Uh, but they also note that in this particular case, the way that the statute was defined, looking only at the point in time of initial penetration, and that's it, because that's the elements to the offense, there was nothing to withdraw. You can't withdraw the consent because nothing after that initial penetration was a crime. So the court said that if the actual penetration is accomplished with the woman's consent, the accused is not guilty of rape, although he may be guilty of another crime because of his subsequent actions. And the first part of that sentence, that... If you have your initial penetration with consent, it's not rape. That's the part that everyone has been upset about because that sounds harsh. That sounds cruel. If you didn't know what the rape law was at the time, it doesn't make any sense. 
And that is how the public reacted when this decision was handed down on May 17th. So what you had happen was the General Assembly was like, whoa, this is not okay. And in 12 days, on May 29th, 1979, they completely redid our rape statutes. They deleted everything that had been there before about initial penetration being the only part, and they completely rewrote it, creating Article 7A of our uh, criminal offense codes. So instead of it being initial penetration and now related to all of intercourse, instead of it being just rape, we also added sex offense categories to cover a bunch of other sex acts aside from intercourse because the General Assembly was shocked by how the state v. Way decision was handed down it created an outcry and it needed to be fixed. Now, there hasn't been a case to overrule State v. Way. So theoretically, it still exists as precedent. But one of the things that we look at as lawyers is we consider what are called canons of construction, these various concepts that we put into place to try and give meaning to the words that legislatures create. And one of those is the assumption that when the legislature takes an action, it does so deliberately, and it's meant to affect some kind of change. So what Senator Jackson and his supporters have argued is that state v. way is still good law, that you can't withdraw consent once sex has begun. But if that's the case, you have to wonder what effect did the General Assembly's changes to the law less than two weeks after this decision was made? What effect did that have? Because if you argue that the law in state v. way is still valid, it's as though the General Assembly really did nothing. And doing nothing when you adopt a wholesale rewrite of statutes violates our canons of construction. So that's to give you an overview of our common law system. You know, kind of the irony of this whole debate was that my sole issue was the stupidity in telling women that no does not mean no as a marketing campaign for a bill. If it's something where DAs are being lazy and don't want to prosecute and they want to blame it on judges or police are being lazy and don't want to prosecute and want to blame it on judges, you know, frame it that way when you're explaining it to people, but don't give women false information and they can't withdraw consent, especially in a, a forum like social media where the story gets changed from the original story to the next uh, copy paste to the next copy paste after that. Um, so if you happen to be someone who is counseling a victim, please make sure they report it to the police. Don't listen to the fact that, oh, she withdrew consent, so it doesn't matter. Report it anyway. Insist on a prosecution anyway. And if, God forbid, any of you are in an awkward situation in the future where you're worried you might be attacked, you know, don't hesitate to revoke consent if something feels wrong. You have that right. Your consent matters. Don't listen to what a goddamn politician says, especially when you look at the actual session laws, the actual statutes that are still available on the website, and you can see that the government deliberately took action to address precedent that they didn't like. So folks, that's going to wrap it up for this particular podcast. I'd keep going on, but we're already at 45 minutes and I respect y'all's time. Uh, please remember to join the conversation online. Follow us on Twitter at Fiskamall, that is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. -L. Tweet us with your questions and comments using the hashtag Fisk, that is hashtag F-S-C-K. If you like what you're hearing, please remember to give us a five-star rating on the iTunes store or leave us a text review and also tell your friends about it. We're at about 1,200 subscribers. I love it, but I want to go ahead and reach more people, so please share it with your friends. Thank you so much for listening. On behalf of myself, Mike the Sound Guy, I hope all of you have a blessed week. Take care. <laughs>